0: listening to a podcast from The National. Those of us who've been lucky enough to live and work in the UAE and and other parts of the region um, have obviously had quite a bit of success. And being in this part of the world also gives you a kind of global view and a connection uh, to communities and countries outside of what might be the norm if you're living elsewhere and maybe parts of the developed world. Especially for those who might have origins from this region, when we look at one of the biggest plights of our generation, which is the refugee situation from conflict and natural disasters, countries like Syria, Iraq, North Africa, elsewhere in this world, we begin to feel that maybe somehow we can contribute. Maybe we can play our part in alleviating the suffering of those who for Anything other than circumstances beyond their control would be just like us trying to live their lives as we possibly do. Welcome to the last Business Extra episode of 2017. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. We're coming to you from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. And for this episode, we're going to be speaking to, in just a moment, a fund manager from New York, talking about how he went and experienced the realities of the refugee camp in Lebanon. Also to the United Nations Refugee Agency on how you can provide a voice for refugees. And later on, we'll be talking to Mastercard for their experience on how the private sector can also help. So as I mentioned, let's hear that personal story from Khalid Beydoun, managing partner at New York hedge fund Repos Capital. He talked to me about the experience of taking his children to visit a Syrian refugee camp in Lebanon at the end of the summer. And he told me all about it.
1: We visited a place uh, in northern Lebanon, so near the Syrian border in a place called um, Akkar, which is... um, North of Tripoli, uh, not a you know not a not a particularly nice area, um, a lot of poverty up there anyway. And we visited a place called um, Malak, which is a center that was set up by uh, an NGO that one of our friends introduced us to. Uh, and her mission was essentially to provide, a center or a a location where kids from the nearby refugee camps could come and not just learn, but but be in an environment where they can be around other children. Um, So, you know, I was fascinated by the whole concept. And um, we went up there with with, with the kids and they had, you know, I think probably one of the most uh, important experiences of their lives because they you know, they, they still, to this day, and I know it's only recent, they still are able to relate to kind of where they live, which is in the middle of Manhattan, compared to to what we saw. So it was a, it was a, it was a tough experience, but I think it, from a learning perspective, it was fascinating.
0: Now, uh, to, to take a step back, you've you've had a very successful career in investment banking. You currently run a hedge fund out of New York. Originally, you're Lebanese, but you haven't lived in Lebanon full time for a long, long time. And there, there's always a temptation to think that um, you know you've you've moved on, your family's moved on, and and so there's there's probably a many, many issues more immediate, more local um, in New York or in America that, that might interest your children and yourself much more. So what motivated you to kind of stop, hold on a minute, let's not take the, the usual family holiday at this point and let's take the kids, the oldest being uh, 11, the youngest being six, and let's take them to this camp and show them what's happening there. I mean, it, your discussions with your wife, with your boss, with your, um, with your colleagues, I mean, uh, you know, it must have been a very difficult decision to make.
1: Yeah, it was, and it wasn't. I think, um, I mean, just in terms of my you know, my, my family still lives in Lebanon, so maximum we'll go once a year. Sometimes we skip, but we, we try and go at least once a year and probably spend around um, two weeks there. And what I found really interesting when we got to Lebanon was how uninterested the local population was with the Syrian crisis or the refugee crisis, the... Um, the locals, or the local Lebanese, you have to look at it from their perspective as well. Have reached a point where they just—I don't think they're able to to absorb or to process uh, tragedy, and so therefore they just ignore it. Um, I think that was that was one of the most striking things was that you know, okay, Lebanon is can stand on its t- on its own two feet, and yes, they've taken in millions of you know well over a million, I don't know the exact number, but well over a million refugees, by far more than any other country. Um, but the local population are not helping, so they aren't willing to go out of their ways. Of course, you know the, the, the center that we went to was set up by a Lebanese lady, but you know, if the whole nation was trying to help, it, I mean, we might be in a different situation. I think as far as they're concerned is that they're just taking up space and it's not their their problem, which in itself was, was a very sad thing to see. Um, so kind of that was, that was intriguing. Even my, even my kind of my parent, I mean, my parents said, yes, you know, I think you should go and see, but there's no interest amongst the local Lebanese to, you know, do what we did, just go up and visit or see how they can help or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. And that's, you know, it's very hard to judge that because we don't, we don't live there. But I found that to be quite interesting. Um, and I mean, the reason why we took time out was was very simple. It's you know, we're extremely fortunate where we live now, and uh, it's very hard for my children to see anything like this. I think this is one of the biggest tragedies of our generation. Um, you know, people. You know, these are true. the problem with with this is not. You know, people say, yeah, but look at you know, look at the favelas in Brazil, or look at you know, the slums in India, or whatever. But you know, of course, those are you know, poverty anywhere in the world is terrible. But when it comes as a result um, of a conflict or of war, it's different because the, these children or these people two years ago were living normal lives in normal homes they've been displaced uh in a, in a in a very cruel way and are having to effectively eat off the floor and you can almost tell that it's entirely new to them what they're experiencing this isn't something that they grew up in or anything that they've that their system is, is used to processing um you know in i mean in, in beirut you'll see uh the level of poverty you'll see families That have nowhere to go literally nowhere so they end up sitting on those islands in the middle of highways you know mother father three four five children um begging obviously and literally eating off the floor you know in in some cases there's infants brand you know babies that were just born that are you know effectively hanging in the middle of an island uh, on the highway, and this is just one glimpse. You know, you have this is happening across the Middle East, but it's happening in, in a big way in Lebanon. So, you know, for us to have a chance to to see that was important for me, and um, and so yeah, we took you know we, we, we took we took the kids, and uh, my eldest, I think, was probably the most affected because she could process. What was going on, and uh, you know, I think I think she learned a lot from that.
0: I mean, look, you you talk about trauma, you talk about psychological trauma, you talk about the trauma of seeing this. I mean, your children they engaged on a on a one to one basis with 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 children in in the refugee camp. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, my children's Arabic isn't very good, but you know, we we were able to spend the whole you know a day with with the children and. Um, you know, I think it, it was more um, them realizing the way other children are living, or the way they're, they're going through certain experiences. So yeah, we they you know they interacted with them. In some cases, they were able to kind of talk about about some stuff. We we took some uh, treats, some, some candy, some sweets for, for for all the kids in the uh, in the camp and. Um, you know that was that was just that was just the least thing that we that we could do. We we helped out um, in the centre. We helped out. We helped doing some some work with uh, with some of the teachers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, I don't think I think we we it was just a a look into what's going on outside of your outside of your real world. And and my my eldest daughter still, you know, recently she. Um, she changed the uh, home page on her phone from, you know, if it was a family picture or something, and she put a picture of the kids that we saw in the camp. And I asked I said, why, why did you do that? And she said, it's to remind myself uh, whenever I'm, whenever I want something I don't get or whenever I'm upset. And that, to me, was kind of very important because it was almost the whole purpose of of why we did this was effectively to not just give them perspective, but to you know obviously to genuinely help. But that that I think was an interesting uh, takeaway. <laughs>
0: And I wonder how much the, the current situation is playing out in terms of, of your background as a Lebanese person who whose family moved from the Middle East um, several decades ago and settled in, in the West. And, and now there's a completely different atmosphere. It's very hard for anyone from this region um, to try and get that new life there even more so i mean of course we've had refugees in the middle east for a long time um you know going back to the middle of the 20th century but this this feels like as you said um you know the the, the, the very much a, a broader more generational impact that we haven't had since probably the first um palestinian refugees following the uh, creation of the state of israel so really this is the biggest uh sea change in that regard and and how much does that Play into it that it could have so easily have been your family um, that that could have been stuck in this situation if times were different.
1: Um, I mean, I, I think I think you know the, the the extent of the tragedy is almost lost in today's news because I don't think the um, the Western media is that interested in really reporting what's going on and. Very often, you know, people are just tired of hearing about problems in the Middle East. So, as far as the West goes, kind of outside the Middle East, it's it's not a particularly well-covered topic. And in the Middle East itself, it's almost a taboo subject because it's a massive, massive problem. Um, and you know, the the, uh, the the displacement of people is on such a severe scale that. Uh, that it's almost frightening. Is is it how 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 can this happen? Be allowed to happen, and how come there's no kind of solution for it? And yes, you know, of course, my association with the region um, brings me closer to the situation. You know, would it, would I have been as keen for my children to have that experience if I wasn't from there? Maybe not. Uh, but but I think. But but I, I found, like I said at the beginning, I, what I found really interesting was how. Um, not uninterested, but how tired of the problem the locals were. And I think that, that in itself is, 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 is quite sad uh, because it, it, almost, it, it almost makes the whole thing even worse.
0: And when, you, when you're in Manhattan and you're talking to your friends and you're at work and you're managing a hedge fund and having discussions, I mean, does this do, does it ever come up? Do they ever say, oh, you're away, where did you go, expecting you to say, you know, whatever, Cabo or whatever? But, um, you know, when yeah. you say, oh, actually, oh, I, I went to Lebanon and I took my kids to a refugee camp, and what's the response? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the
1: response is almost, you know, some sometimes people... You, know, you you still don't want to bring it up in certain situations, and sometimes you do. But when it does come up, um, I think people almost can't relate to what that would be would be like, particularly in that part of the world. Because um, for the for those that are less well travelled, you know, the media all the, all the media reports is that that part of the world is just extremely dangerous, full of terrorism. It's all bad, negative things. Uh, yes, there's a refugee problem, but there's other problems in the world too, so I think you know. I, th- I think you know the more compassionate and the more well-educated people will find it fascinating and you know say it's a great thing. And uh, and that's to be honest the majority of people because Manhattan tends to have people that are more they're more well-travelled. But if it's if it's kind of your average your average person who do, who just not out of uh, Stupidity. I would just say, out of lack of knowledge, doesn't understand. They may, they may. Sometimes they may actually react, not react, but not fully process the uh, the fact that we did that. It's almost like, why would you, why would you do that? So you know, there's there's two um, there's two sides.
0: I mean, last year uh, the Obama administration made a call uh, to the private sector to come and help. With this refugee crisis and, and so many companies, I mean, huge companies, Accenture, Airbnb, I mean, the list goes on. I'm just saying the A's. Um, but all the way through to Zed, um, one of your investors, uh, Libra Group, has set up a, uh, a proper base of operations in Greece because of their links to Greece for, for refugees there. This called the Home Project. So it's not alien to to the circle in which you move in, in terms of the high-level private sector in both the US and, and elsewhere. Um, they know about it. The, the the former president has talked about it. Companies have said, yes, we're going to help. We're going to get on board. Uh, particular companies like Libra and others have actually gone out and, and done things on the ground themselves directly as well as supporting these broader initiatives. So it's it, people know about it. Yourself, you're, you know, taking action and and going to the refugee camps. There must be a sort of groundswell of people looking at this issue that maybe it hasn't been reported enough. Maybe not enough people. I mean, do you get a sense that you're you're not alone? That this was, you were definitely yeah, not isolated def- in I mean,
1: this. I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely do. I think um, the corporate response is is, is corporate by nature. Uh, so some of the companies that you mentioned, you know. If you write a check or if you write, if you give a donation, there's two issues. One, does it actually get to the right people? And B, your job almost ends once you've, once you've sent the money. Um, I think in Libra's case with Home Project is they've actually gone out and set up dedicated centers and what they've done is, is pretty amazing, um, you know, I haven't had a chance. I wasn't. We you know we wanted to go and see the home project, but the the the, the kids were sent uh, were, were sent away because it was too hot in uh, in Athens. So they were sent to uh, to the mountains to a camp. But the um, you know going and actively putting people on the ground and investing capital and building shelters and um, getting teachers and finding out a way to to get through this problem is. That that is, I think, a different kind of response to. Um, you know, obviously, the you know Obama was very aware of, of, and I don't think the current president is as aware, anywhere near as aware. But I think Obama was Obama's call was met with uh, sending funds, whereas I think what they really need is actually people on the ground um, helping. And I think the, you know the camp that I went to, or the or the centre that we went to, the, the Mellet camp, or the Home Project are incredible ways
0: to respond more business extra in just a moment but first allow me to tell you about the nationals other podcasts beyond the headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct middle eastern point of view an extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the english premier league and more subscribe to both shows as well as this one on apple podcasts or find us as always at the national.ae Now, let's hear a little bit um, from the perspective of the United Nations Refugee Agency, the UNHCR. Omar Al-Naim, who's the campaign and advocacy officer from the private sector partnership unit, was kind enough to give me the lowdown on how perhaps you as an individual or a company can actually deal with this situation in terms of helping out those suffering. Uh, Omar, thanks for joining us. Uh, Obviously, this time of year with uh, winter setting in, uh, in here and elsewhere, and uh, the holiday period. Uh, perhaps it's time to think about uh, the experience that refugees are having, um, but it's, from what I understand, it's not a uniform experience. There is a there is a different experience that refugees are having, whether they're uh, day one refugees or year six refugees. Is that the perspective that uh, you have uh, from the UN side?
2: Uh, thank you, Mustafa, for having me. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, as you said, as the winter comes, we have the cases of refugees in places like Lebanon or Georgia who have been on standby, if we may call it, standby, waiting for a better life, for a future, or knowing what's going to happen to them, versus the refugees now um, that are fleeing Myanmar into Bangladesh. And numbers are just exceeding 600,000 refugees. So the reality of every refugee is different. Every refugee is a story. Every refugee is a person. Every refugee has different needs from uh, one to another, but what they all share is that they are um, ordinary people going through extraordinary circumstances that you and I um, can't even think of, to be honest.
0: So day one, obviously that's an emergency situation, a crisis, day one, shelter, food, um, you know, those are the priorities for a refugee. But uh, several years down the line, which many of the refugees who are uh, in the Middle East, in camps in Lebanon, elsewhere, um, they have different priorities after several years. It's become a new normal, right? So we have to find a way to uh, give them uh, a chance, a future based on their new reality.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we if we call it the cycle of a refugee life, it starts with 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 survival. I mean, the first step is the refugees flee to 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 survive and to be to be um, away from danger, whether it's uh, wars or uh, natural disaster. The first step is the registration with UNSCR, where then we um, hopefully deliver our first mandate, which is the protection of refugees. That's the survival stage. The survival stage leads to uh, providing life-saving assistance, including shelter, food, water, and medical care. Then the second stage is safeguarding their fundamental rights. Uh, this is the part where we work with the host communities on 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 um, uh, providing um, um, medical, psychological support, almost becoming the the um, the nation that that holds refugees and that they belong to. So we act sometimes as, as, as the, the Ministry of Education, um, the police, refugees come to us with, with, with basic needs to safeguard their new reality in the country that has hosted them. Then there's a third layer, which is as time um, uh, moves, moves on, and we just have to really admit that the uh, lifespan of a refugee in a country goes up to 10 years before they know what's going to happen to them next. And at that stage, we focus on building better futures. This is where we help families and individuals either return home or resettle them into another look, another country that can welcome them in as their their um, future citizens or provide their, provide them the assistance in the country that they're staying in in that transit period. So as you said at the beginning, the the, the needs are different. The needs vary from one refugee to another. But the reality of 2000, 2017, now entering 2018, that there are 65 million forcibly displaced people worldwide, 65 million people, which are numbers that are close to the Second second World War numbers. So okay. the scale, I have to admit, and maybe I, I as UNHCR shouldn't be saying this, are, are overwhelming. Therefore, there comes the different layers of responsibility, whether it's government, civil society, um, Uh, the private sector, or us, you and I as individuals.
0: And of course, there's a lot of things that are not within the control of the UN or any individual country or group. And as you say, in 2017, the, the experiences is that we're at somehow a generational peak in terms of refugees. Yet it, it's it, you make progress in some areas. Uh, for example, fewer people are making the dangerous crossing across the Mediterranean to Europe compared to previous years. But then, as you mentioned, the Rohingya crisis is a new situation which stretches already thin resources. So does it sometimes feel like you take one step forward and two steps back when you're dealing with the, with refugee situations.
1: Uh,
2: well, I guess for me personally, I need to look at the light at the end of the tunnel because otherwise, I can't really do my job. But you're 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 right, and I think at the same time, because the numbers are are are, are um, reaching levels that we've never seen before or only seen before in horrific times of our history. Now there is a, a collective collaboration coming from different, different parts of the world, from different entities, to come together and address our reality. Um, as you said, the situation is, 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 is huge, um, just put it that, that way. But at the same time, we also have reached levels of, of technology advancement. We have reached levels of, 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 um, of, let's say, common humanity among us as, as nations and individuals, that there are a lot of initiatives that happen across the globe for better support of the refugees, whether it's the host community in countries that allow them in. You know, let's have cases you know, in Lebanon and in Jordan or um, companies that, that um, they try to integrate the refugee response into their DNA and what they do as organizations. I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of success stories I can say in, in in compacting the current reality that we live,
0: and it becomes a kind of a, a, an economy. I, I don't want to use a label like refugee economy, but in those host countries, the the donations, the aid that that comes to refugees, then then kind of spreads in the host countries as well. From what I understand,
2: oh no, I mean I think I think you know the the smart way to look at this is that refugees are a, a resource. Refugees are people that can actually work and can can contribute to the advancement and the development of that country. where w- One thing that is quite important to flag, we as UNSCR only work within the parameters that the countries, the host countries allow us in. So we work with the Lebanese government, with the Jordanian, with the Bangladesh government, so we don't just come in and say this is what we think should happen. And that dialogue is a cons- uh, an ongoing dialogue between us and the host community. But now we see more and more that countries are understanding that the refugees should be perceived as a resource. Um, in Jordan now, there are certain work permits that are being issued to refugees. Uh, there are European companies that are telling, let's say, again, a Jordanian example, that um, uh, if, country, if companies hire refugees, there will be a bit of tax bracket. It's an economy, as you said, but not, not, um, not, shouldn't be as a burden to the host community, but should be looked at, looked at as, a, as, a, as a possibility, to be honest.
0: I mean, the refugee uh, situation has become a talking point around the world. It's become politically very sensitive in regions like Europe. Um, But the Arab world in general, from from your point of view, uh, from the UN refugee agency side, how has the Arab world done in terms of dealing with the realities of of this sort of refugee peak in our generation compared to other regions?
2: We've we've become the largest uh, exporter, and the largest importer of refugees at the same time. We've seen the, the horrific images of refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean. So we have that in mind. But we should not forget that most refugees who are out of our region, you know, from Syria, Iraq, um, Sudan, are hosted in our region. So the efforts in, in, in our part of the world are are tremendous in dealing with the crisis. And don't forget, we're not... We're not um, We're not a developing um, society. We are still, you know, Lebanon is not a rich country. For example, Lebanon is not Germany. Don't get me wrong, Germany has done fantastic, fantastic work and has welcomed, you know, over a million refugees into Germany. But Germany is not Lebanon. So, you know, a country as Lebanon, taking in numbers that are almost quarters population of refugees, that is something that should be saluted and and congratulated on. However, at the same time, there needs to be a comprehensive response. The problem of refugees, or the issue of refugees, if I may correct myself, is not a Lebanese problem, and it's not a Jordanian problem, and it's not even a Middle Eastern problem. It's a global problem. And the world needs to come together to address this as one unified, um, uh, well, unit. And that actually has led now to what is, co- what, is, um, what is going to be issued in September of this year, which is the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants where, you know, last year, 139 member states um, of the United Nations in September 2016 came together for this historic uh, moment to come together and say, okay, we will commit as the world to deal with the crisis. And now, next September, we will hear of something that is called the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. Well, then the burden, quote-unquote, will be shared not only by the countries that are closest geographically to to conflict, but by the world um, as a collective force.
0: And how, as individuals, as companies in the UAE, in the wider region of the Middle East, how can we help, how can we give a voice for refugees at the moment? What's your advice?
2: Okay, well, that's a, that's a two, two-sided question. One, how can we as individuals help? And let me start by saying, we have an a initiative that we've set up that is called Voices for Refugees. Uh, what's a voice for a refugee? In, in, in the era of social media, a voice of a refugee is someone who can amplify their message of resilience, sharing positive stories of refugees, talking about how important it is to support refugees, getting the story out there. Yeah, the crisis has been going on for so long, there is media fatigue, there is uh, um, less interest on and on, on, on the topic, just because we keep hearing all these horrific stories every day. So as a voice of refugees, we encourage people to talk on their social media, to um, mobilize their communities to come together and support. There is obviously the funding issue, which is the funding gap. Um, we as UNHCR, and I'm sure a lot of the partners that also work on the issue, are uh, short on funding, let's just put it frankly. We put a budget every year. to to the UN Member States and we say this is what we estimate that we will need to 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 do our job and support refugees. Fifty two percent is the short term funding for us for twenty eighteen. Fifty two percent. So here we rely on the on the generosity of the private sector, on individuals to also do their bit and contribute as much as they can financially. But then there is the amplifying the message and 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 being a voice for refugees, and at the same time, funding is also a very important
0: part so we can do what we, what we need to do as an organization. It's a catch-22, isn't it? Because as you quite rightly say, uh, for a refugee, you want to empower them, you want to give them a future. So it isn't just about putting your hand in your pocket and giving money. So, you know, be a voice for them, go on social media, advocate for their situation, educate, advocate for them, as you quite poetically say, as ordinary individuals going through ordinary ex- extraordinary circumstances. However, at the same time, the realities are you also need funding to meet Either the emergency responses that happen, or to meet the extra requirements in winter, or just to just to deal with the various uh, organisational aspects of uh, the refugee crisis. So you do need money as well. So it's a, it's a case of working along both channels, correct?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the funding and the funding can actually go into the area where the the, the donor decides to donate. So, for example, as you said, now there's the winter appeal going up from not just UNSCR, but from a lot of different organizations that provide winter assistance to refugees, then there is that emergency of the winter. Please help UNSCR or others keep refugees warm. That's, a, that's an emergency appeal. But at the same time, there are um, funding programs for um, entrepreneurship, women training, women development, education, um, social skills. So the, because we go back to the stage of the life of the refugee, the, fed, the circle of refugees that I mentioned earlier. Survival, safeguarding fundamental rights, or building a better future. And there are different programs that can fit what what um, what you as an individual feel closely um, towards. And the same thing actually applies to companies. We have corporate partners that would say, okay, so we would like to do a, a fundraising run through our customers or through our employees to donate funding for an emergency situation, like Winter or Rohingya. But we also have partners that will say, okay, uh, Microsoft will give training for 500 Syrian refugees in Jordan on programming and coding, which is very different if you look at it in terms of where, quote-unquote, where the money goes. So there are different stages of of engagement with UNSCR, depending on who you are as an organization and what's important for you from a brand point of view and also as a donor from what what um, occasion touches your heart the most, so to speak. But at the same time, there's another layer that actually I want to talk about, which is how we can learn from the private sector, how organizations like Unicef or others get the expertise and, and, and know-how that only the private sector has in improving the lives of refugees. And I give actually um, IKEA here as an example of, a, of an excellent partner that we have for four years. Yes, they do fund us. That is very, very true. But at the same time, their innovation team has been working with us for a very long time. That we've established now the um, the shelter unit. So now, in new camps, if it's not an emergency situation, they're no longer tents. They're IKEA-designed shelter units that we've been working together to to make the living standards of refugees even better.
0: So, if if we if I sum that up. and and correct me if I've missed the point, but hopefully I've been listening well and I haven't missed the point, Um, but whether you're an individual or a company and you wish to contribute somehow to alleviating the problems that the refugees have, play to your strengths, as an individual and a company, look at what you specifically can contribute, what you can provide uh, groups like the UN and other groups working on this issue uh, from the point of view of, of the areas of your expertise and the areas of you, where you have a lot of experience. Is that right?
2: That is, that's exactly right. And I just think if we keep at the back of our mind that refugees are ordinary people going through extraordinary circumstances, and everybody once in a while in their life needs a helping hand. That's really, I think, for me, is is, is, is the the important side of it from a sentimental point. Having said that, refugees can be a resource, and if we give um, today, it will all pay dividends in the future.
0: Paul Musser is the Senior Vice President for Government and Development for MasterCard. He leads the company's humanitarian partnerships and programs, including those supporting refugee needs. I caught up with him from the US. He got up very early to talk to us about the overall situation of how the private sector contributes to some of the solutions that are currently being worked on. Paul, thanks for joining us uh from the West Coast, um, appreciate you being able to give us some insight on behalf of MasterCard in terms of uh, some of the initiatives and, and partnerships that you're involved in. Uh, from your point of view, um, how has this year gone in terms of some of those refugee-related programs?
3: Thanks for the, the opportunity to, to join the conversation. MasterCard's perspective is that there's a lot of work ahead of us, but we're making significant progress. We don't do that by ourselves. Obviously, as a technology provider, we partner with some of the greatest organizations on the planet helping the refugees. There's a lot of work to do, but uh, I can give you examples of where I think the community has made significant progress in the mm-hmm. last 12 to 24 months. So if you look at um, events, say, in, uh, in and around Syria, obviously the, the political and the warfare conditions are very difficult. And the communities that surround Syria have um, once again demonstrated incredible generosity. Whether you're speaking of Lebanon or Jordan, Turkey, or um, Greece, the number of refugees that have found their ways into those communities have been supported significantly by the local hosts. In order to make that happen, we've assisted, for example, UNHCR and World Food Programme, by providing them the technology that allows them to distribute food and aid in the local market um, to make sure that the refugees are getting the life-sustaining commodities and services they need, but also contributing to the local economy. If you look to Africa, refugees have been a long-held problem because of the, the challenges of both environment and political stability whether you're talking about uh, the communities in Uganda or Kenya, Tanzania, who have long, again, showed their generosity by playing host to a variety of, of uh, refugee communities. Uh, the need is great, and some of the most amazing work has been done there. So there's really innovative work being done in Kenya and Uganda, for example, around rethinking what it means to have a refugee camp, And the refugee community. A portion of that's technology, and we're participating in that, but also a lot of incredible work by local governments and non profit entities like the Kenyan Red Cross or Mercy Corps and World Food Program.
0: It's interesting that MasterCard is using its own innovations in terms of the digital payment space to engage refugees in the local economy and to kind of connect them there. It's important for the dignity of these people and also for their own empowerment to feel like they they have some independence, I guess. Is it improving that experience compared to the old days where it was just vouchers or paper or or, or, or less sort of techie uh, aspect to it?
3: That's exactly right. So as you point out, historically, assistance to a refugee community meant provision of what the experts call in-kind goods. That's a, a cooking oil or a sheet of tin for a roof. And while that is absolutely critical and we can never stop making sure that we have those tangible resources available in times of emergency, what the research shows is that the refugee communities and the host communities that support them are extraordinarily resilient. And there's nothing more powerful and the local micro and small entrepreneur, whether that's uh, a bodega who's offering services on the corner of food or a local carpenter, um, those local shopkeepers or local craftsmen are critical to the economy. And the, the refugees can be a contribution, and our research and the research of others show that they are an important contribution. So by providing them the ability to take the resources that would have used to purchase a bag of rice and converting it into digital currency, a local um, payment tool, and allowing them to buy something in the community. They not only get the choice and the empowerment you talk about, but they also drive the local economy.
0: And and does that have an additional function? Does it help in terms of Allowing these people, who initially, as as we quite rightly talk about, their primary concerns when they first are dealing with the emergency is shelter, is food. But then some of the, some of these people have been dealing with this situation for years in this region, sadly, um, and they move beyond that, and they actually want to have a future, and they want to engage, and they want to to have a sort of hope, if you like, that they can be productive members of society and and have some kind of 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 so- something to work towards. How, how does implementing this technology help in terms of entrepreneurship or startups or, or even them finding a job? Is it, is it somehow a gateway to that?
3: It is. You know, it's, it's, um, I, I can think of two really great examples. Um, Rwanda and Uganda, for example. Um, Uganda is experiencing one of the fastest-growing refugee populations in the world. And the government of Uganda... The humanitarian and development organizations, along with the private sector, have really not simply handed out goods, but they have reached out and said, let's make you part of this community, not just a visitor. And as such, it recognizes the reality that refugees frequently, although they want to go home, they can't go home right away. And so rather than having them forced to stay in a in a small camp where they live by the grace of the local government and the international community giving them something, it says to them, let's have you become a cherished part of this community as long as you're here. And if you're a farmer, let's help you be a farmer. If you're a craftsman, let's help you be a craftsman. And there's lots of great examples of this. In Uganda, in the area around Bidi Bidi, there's incredible work being done around allocating um, land and encouraging refugees to take up their farming skills again and provide for not just themselves but the Ugandan community. same would be true in the work that the Center for Inclusive Growth here at MasterCard is partnering in Rwanda around enabling small and micro enterprises to take the skills that they bring with them from their country of origin and helping the Rwandan community grow because they have a craft that they can provide. They have a skill. Those kinds of investments are critical. It's where the private sector really can flourish. We understand well what it takes to help a small enterprise grow. And when you have fertile ground, like the the work that the government of Rwanda and the government of Uganda have provided, there's really great opportunity for both
0: Sides of this equation, and this kind of sustainable sustainable approach is important because some of the concerns of the host countries are obviously security, huge influx of refugee population. So the idea that there can be a route towards something productive then then can also tackle some of these initial concerns of the host country, I imagine. And having a digital payment system means things can be tracked. So from the point of view of security of, 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 of aid and donations and, and the wider security picture, that must be helpful.
3: It, it is. It's absolutely helpful. And, and sometimes it's quite apparent. For example, as you mentioned, the ability to deliver aid digitally allows us to not only make sure that it's tracked, but that it's efficiently delivered. That The effectiveness of that aid is tracked and monitored. And those are critical things, right? So a government who's donating or an individual like you and I who give, we expect that the custodians of those funds to use those funds in the most effective and efficient way possible. That's critical. There's another side to the equation also, and that is by providing access to local markets. And that's not just the ability to deliver your recently grown produce into the the small market community and sell it, but it's being part of the financial community and being able to save, being able to contribute through remittances back to family members who are still where you came from or to those who have moved forward beyond where you are. So whether it's remittances, whether it's savings accounts, all those financially included uh, opportunities are critical to to strengthening the fabric of the host community
0: now let me flip this around because clearly there's a lot of good work that the company is doing um and obviously that'll resonate with you know key audiences and stakeholders and and it's very worthwhile but within mastercard itself how does this work impact your colleagues other departments other sections uh in this region around the world obviously you do this every day this is your you know bread and butter but how, how is the engagement within the company itself on these issues?
3: You know, this is, this is one of the things that I think that most um, observers from the outside of the firm would say that this is probably just a public relations activity. And, and I can tell you it isn't just that. It's so much more. So let me give you a couple of examples. We believe that the opportunity to work with the likes of the Rwandan government or Uganda or Kenya or Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey is critical to our long-term relationship with them. So sometimes your best friend is the one who shows up when you need the most and doesn't leave. And so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is the fact that these markets, these Um, use cases are extraordinarily challenging. And as I said at the very beginning, technology is never the solution by itself. It's necessary frequently, but it's rarely sufficient. And so, by partnering with these refugee communities, by partnering with governments and these innovative NGOs, we're being challenged to think of our own products and services in new ways. Now, I'll give you a real simple example. A few years ago, a group of NGOs came to us and said, we have long used paper vouchers. So when I, uh, let's say I'm an NGO and I want to provide assistance to a community who's experiencing a humanitarian crisis. After the emergency is passed, I may use vouchers to give those um, uh, aid recipients an opportunity to go, go shop in a local market. But maybe the ability to provide them cash either digital or in fiat, isn't really the best choice. And so I, I've traditionally given them a, a paper voucher. Mm-hmm. The problem is that paper vouchers are extraordinarily inefficient; very difficult to track the effectiveness. Of them. So they came to us and said, look, we recognize this isn't payment per se, but can you use your technology and your skills to think of something new? And so with a lot of help, we built MasterCard Aid Network, which is a digital tool set that looks and feels, well, it doesn't look, actually. It looks like the product that you and I carry in our wallet. But when it comes to the ability of the humanitarian to do the work that they need, it feels like a paper voucher that's so much better. And so we took those ingredients off the shelf of our pantry, as I say, and we remixed a new recipe, and that became MasterCard Aid. So that kind of innovation is extraordinarily valuable for us because it challenges us to think of the things we can do in a new way. It also makes us look at the markets and the assumptions we've made for many years and reassess those. I'd say that there's a third function here, besides the partnership with the local community, besides the innovation. And that is a, a strong, deeply held belief here at MasterCard that isn't just public relations, that A company that wants to be part of a community must contribute to that community. And and this extends all the way into the work that my team does, that the volunteer efforts that we find around the company um, in every corner of the world. This is a critical component. It's part of our DNA. And so it's not just a public relations activity. And we find that successful companies have very similar models of execution.
0: And what advice would you offer to a company that uh, maybe one of the chief executives or senior executives is listening to this interview now and is thinking, hmm, maybe we want to uh, get into that space and, and kind of make that a part of our, our corporate social responsibility or our outreach to the community or the wider region? You know, one or two pointers that you could give them to get started. You know, what's the approach they should take?
3: So. I have a couple, and they're pretty straightforward. One is, don't come to the table with one solution. Come to the table with everything you have. So if you have the ability to be philanthropic, be philanthropic. Don't forget you know the CSR work. That's important also. We all have a social responsibility, and that includes corporations. The third thing is the work that I do, which is we call the shared value model. And in this case, we ask, What is it that we do every day as a business that is applicable in these cases of need? So I do payments. I'm not a a healthcare practitioner, and so I look at the problem from the payments perspective. I know that there are logistics companies who look at it from the logistics perspective, and we would we tell our partners in market that's where you bring your greatest power. We think. That's where it's a sustainable solution, good for the business, and it's good for the community. So in our case, we do payments. In our conversation, at the table, when we participate, we start there, and that's what we contribute. And We would encourage folks to do exactly the same thing. Look at your skills. Use those to make a change.
0: This was the Business Extra podcast for this week and 2017. I hope you've enjoyed it. You can read our fuller coverage on thenational.ae. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to this and our other shows on Apple Podcasts. I'm Mustafa Al Rawi, wishing you a very happy new year. See you next year.